Hello and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer and I run the Production Advice website aimed at helping you get better results recording, mixing and mastering your music. And joining me again this week is John Tidy from reaperblog.net and a ton of other places. Uh, hi, John. Thanks for coming in on the show. Hey, good to be here again. This show is going to be... This was actually John's idea. He pointed out that we've had we're 21 episodes now. We've had a ton of great questions coming in from you guys listening to the show, and I haven't answered any of them because I struggle to find time to answer my emails, let alone YouTube comments and all the rest of it. So we've compiled a list of some of the most common questions, some of the most interesting questions. Some people asked lots of questions, so in, we've made a rule for ourselves that we're going to answer one question per person in this show, but we will keep track of the questions and maybe bring some of them out in future if you guys like a question and answer episode, if you give us good feedback from this show. The other thing is, you know, don't be offended if we don't answer your questions, A, because there were quite a few of them, and B, because some of them were such good questions, they've given me ideas for future shows. And some of them were just kind of didn't seem to fit into the collection we have for this episode. But uh, we do read all of your comments and questions and we listen and pay attention. Before we get going, John, you helped me out on the, the previous show. And I didn't give you any time to talk about you or what you do. I mean, I've known about you for years because you did the home recording show, right? Yep. And before that, I had a blog called Audio Geek Scene. And the Reaper blog is more focused on training people with the Reaper software, which I feel is the best recording, mixing, mastering software there is. It's freedom from, the, uh, from Pro Tools. And it changed my life, and I want to share that kind of good feeling that I got from Reaper with everyone else. And it's going pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I think you really hit a, a niche that people, you know, there's there's a ton of Reaper users out there and I wasn't seeing much stuff specifically aimed at that. I love the fact that you say that you, you just basically, it's flat out the best, not just because, I mean, it's super affordable, right? You can, I mean, you can download it for free because um, I don't know how many people listening, to, maybe everybody knows what Reaper is, but I mean, it's a DAW. Uh, does it do MIDI as well as audio? Yeah, of course. And it does video. All my videos are made inside Reaper, edited in Reaper. Am I right in thinking it's open source? It's not open source. The demo has no restrictions. There, After a few days, you get a um, kind of a, a nag screen, tells you that Reaper is not free. And if you want to continue using it after 60 days, then it costs you $60 or $225 for the commercial license, the full commercial license. But there's no restrictions. There's no light and pro versions of the software it's just different license agreements and the main thing is that if you are uh, making over twenty thousand dollars using reaper then you buy the uh, commercial license i think that's such a great way of doing it and it's kind of in such dramatic contrast to i mean you know there's there's a ton of different pieces of software that people can use out there for DAWs. But, you know, the the one, and I'm not a Pro Tools user, but the one that I keep hearing people moaning about is Pro Tools, where you're tied to a piece of hardware, or I think they've just introduced a subscription model that people are saying is too expensive for just the software. And also, I think it's a really refreshing change to have a piece of software available on that basis. So I was wrong that it was open source, but isn't it, is it just one person developing it then? I had the impression there was kind of a team of people and, and people could contribute to the development process. Did I get that wrong? There is a small team, currently just two people developing the software. It's customizable enough that the users can create a lot of their own things. They can create their own custom actions, scripts, which are uh, a deeper integration with the program than a, than a simple action. Uh, there's extensions. You can create your own plugins. You can create your own themes. So they change the uh, the majority of the look of the program. So it's it's very, very open and customizable, and it, it has the feeling of open source, but it's not actually open source. Some of the extensions are. It's it's very, very cool. And you let slip the other day when we were talking that you have some, uh, some custom scripts and stuff that you've developed for mastering, so I'm going to have to quiz you about those one of these days. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe not this episode, but uh, yeah, for sure. I'd love to talk absolutely. to you about that. And I, I guess this is the point where I should uh, uh, 
come clean and say, because I installed a copy of Reaper back when I first did the videos for the Home Mastering Masterclass course, um, because I wanted to show, you know, in that I use, I use Logic, I use, I do use Pro Tools for one of them. I use WaveLab, which is my preferred DAW for mastering, but I wanted to use Reaper as an example as well. So I think I'm now on day 758 of my free trial, which <laughs> I would feel slightly bad about, but I don't actually use it. So I kind of feel that's, that's okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, it took me a long time as well. So I, I was using it off and on just kind of testing things, often just testing free VST plugins, things to write about on my blog. I would open it up in, in Reaper, play around with it, and it was way faster to do it in Reaper than in Pro Tools. But at the time, Pro Tools was my main DAW. It took me a few years, really, to decide that Reaper was right for me. And for my $60, I got about six years of use out of uh, use and updates in that time before I had to pay again. Yeah, with version 5, it's pretty amazing software. And it's getting better every month. We have monthly updates for free. It's very, very cool. And another thing, I mean, just to go slightly off the topic, another thing that fascinates me is that more and more people are moving away from Pro Tools, which in some ways is weird because from, again, I'm not a user, but what I hear is that it's actually lagged behind a lot of the other DAWs in terms of features um, and usability. I can't remember who it was. I was listening to somebody on the latest episode of the Isotope podcast who just kind of came out and said it. He was like, if I was going to tell somebody what to buy as a professional these days, I'd say Logic, not Pro Tools. And the, the other presenters were like, <gasps> you can't say that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, because, I mean, Joe Gilder, who I know lots of people will be aware of, it, he's using Studio One now. Yeah. You're using Reaper. I have tried Pro Tools and it never really, you know, felt any compelling need to to make that jump or to make that move. I had it and I stuck with it for a while because I was learning it in school. It was mandatory in school. We also learned Logic 7 and Cubase SX3, um, but those were always considered just for MIDI. Yeah, it's... I mean, that was quite I mean, a while. The thing is, it's still, it's still an industry standard. Um, so I, I don't think I would recommend anybody listening to this, if you have the opportunity to learn, I think it's a really great thing to have in your toolkit to be able to use Pro Tools. It's just... It kind of fascinates me the the number of people who know how to use it and choose not to. Anyway, um, we're never going to get avid as sponsors of this show if we carry on like like this. There are a lot of people in sound design and game audio uh, that are switching to Reaper just because they can work ten times faster, creating their own custom workflows. When you're working on a lot of different assets for a game, there's a lot of things that need to be exported and named a certain way, and all all of that is taken care of. So, and and everything inside of the DAW is non-destructive with unlimited undos and everything like that. So it's incredibly powerful. All right, let's, let's move on. Let's get into the questions. Yeah, I should just say that anybody who's interested in the idea of working with Reaper should definitely head over to reaperblog.net, which is uh, John's site that he's been talking about where you can find out a ton more stuff about all of this. But yeah, let's get some questions in. So we have a problem, don't we, with the first question because we don't know how... It's a YouTube comment and we don't know how to pronounce the guy's name. Fitznz. It's F-P-T-N-Z. <laughs> Maybe it's F-P-Tunes or something like that. It's it's missing vowels there that were essential. I mean, it could be could be tunes, couldn't it? I was thinking maybe the p was an o like in owned like pwned so <laughs> so it could be f f f no, we have no idea. Somebody out there who is more cool than us can tell us or maybe he can tell us or she can tell us. Uh, anyway, yeah, what was the question? Lately I've been wondering what's the point in mastering? Why have that second phase instead of bouncing it out to stereo and trying to fix it? Why not just do everything in the mix phase? You can do everything you could and more without bouncing it out and limiting yourself to a stereo track. So I thought, you know, we'd start with the big question, which is why even bother with the topic of this podcast? Um, but it, it's a fair question, right? Because, you know, all DAWs have a master output or you could create a bus and you can put any processing you would like on there. And I mean, to be fair... I kind of almost asked myself this question just recently because uh, for the first time in ages, I'm doing some mixing at the moment for a friend of mine has an album um, and I'm loving it. Uh, it's just such good fun. But it gets to the point where I export my stereo 
WAV and then bring it across into WaveLab for the mastering phase. And then I'm working in the mastering and I think actually I should tweak whatever it is about, you know, lift the the guitar for that section or something, some kind of mix tweak. So I go back into Logic and I make the tweak and I re-export it and I bring it back into WaveLab. There's kind of three main answers to the question though. And, I, and despite understanding where it comes from, I do genuinely think there's value in having a separate, in distinguishing the mixing and the mastering stage. So the first one is just, as far as I'm concerned, mastering is, is an overview of the entire project. I think mastering works best when it's done on a collection of tracks, connection of songs, and you want to master those next to each other as a group. Um, I might master the same song with a different sound if it was collected with a different bunch of tracks. Uh, typically, everything gets remastered for a compilation album, for example. So what worked in the context of the original album might not necessarily work. You're going to keep broadly the same sound, but it probably needs to be tweaked. Um, and so what I mean by that is I bring, you know, let's say I have 10 songs on an album. I talked about this in one of the, the earlier episodes. You bring them all in as stereo files, line them up, and then put separate processing on each song to get the best out of that song and to, to balance it against the others. So in that sense, I think of it as almost like mixing the songs or balancing the songs against each other to create an album. Whereas when you're in the mix stage, you're balancing channels in a mix to create a song. So for me personally, it's almost impossible to have that kind of uh, distance from the mix process, even if I'm mastering my own stuff, without taking that kind of mental step of, okay, this is the mix, export, now I'm in the mastering stage. Which kind of leads me to the second point, which is just, I, for me personally, there's literally too much to think about. When I'm mixing, I'm worrying about the level of the vocal versus the guitars, or the kick and the snare and the bass, or whether the effects are right in this section, or whether, you know, all those kind of tiny little details. It's very zoomed in to then start thinking about the overall sound of it and whether it fits with everything else. It's too much for me to process. I'm much happier just kind of going, I can worry about that later. I'm going to come to that and think about it later. And that's the mastering stage. And that kind of feeds into the third point, I think, which is, I think is really valuable to just have a point where you have to stop, to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, that song is done, apart from whatever I can achieve at the mastering, which, as we know, can actually be quite a lot, but even though you can achieve quite a lot of the mastering stage, I think otherwise you you know what, what's the saying that um, a mix is never finished; it's just abandoned. You know, there comes a point where you hit the deadline, or you run out of patience, or you run out of brain space, or your ears give out on you, whatever it is, and you have to stop. And at that point, you kind of call it done. And I think having a cutoff point where you say, "I'm going to stop worrying about all of those other things that are in my control in the mix," and then just have a much more restricted tool set in mastering is is really valuable. Um, so then the, the only two other little th things that occur to me are if I, th I think there's a real risk if you have too much processing on the master bus, you can actually rely on it. You know, I mean, I often use multiband compression and limiting in mastering, but I think if you put a multiband compressor on the output of your mix, there's a risk that you let it do too much of the mixing for you. Um, I mean, but is that you a problem? Could possibly is, say, but is that a problem? Is making your job easier a problem? <laughs> I right. think it is if you want to be good. Because <laughs> um, for me, the, you know, let, let's say, uh, I mean, you can make the same argument against bus compression, and I'm not a, an advocate of really heavy bus compression either, or even top-down mixing. Sorry, Graham, if you're listening. <laughs> Um, I mean, I do agree they can make things easier and faster. And if you learn to get great results with whatever approach it is, well, then all power to you. If you end up with great results, great. Um, you, know, you know, that's that's the goal. But I think for me, I just personally, I'm slightly uncomfortable with the idea of, of a, a global process on a mix that if you disable it, the mix falls to pieces. Yes. And I think that's the risk with, with multiband compression or overly heavy bus compression. But I'm much more comfortable getting the mix as good as it can possibly be without using those things and then having the option to to kind of take it to another level at the at the mastering stage 
using multipack compression or bus compression or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. I think the risk is if you don't do that, especially early on, you know, if people just starting out start mixing with a multiband compressor on the output bus from day one, I think you're going to miss Or out. even a brick wall limiter on the master bus. While you're mixing, uh, it can definitely uh, change your mix in a negative way, and your mix can completely fall apart when you, if you disable it to do a separate mastering process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's also a risk that you can kind of fall in love with some of the stuff that that processing is doing even though it's not necessarily in the best interests of the music uh you know it's, it's as a, a mastering engineer with clients it's quite a common thing for them to uh to bring me something where i go well you know can we actually that's that everything there is a bit hot can we just back off of that a little bit and they love the thing something about it that they had again it's i mean it's all a matter of taste it's not to say there's anything wrong with it as such it's just for me if I'm recommending what I think is the best way for somebody to do something, I would say get your mix as good as it can possibly. Just like everybody knows that fix it in the mix is uh, a myth and a bit of a um, something you need to be really careful of. On the other hand, there are a ton of things you can fix in the mix. Like I had to do some pretty heavy denoising on one of the vocal tracks on this project that I'm mixing at the moment. Uh, it turned out great. It cleaned up really, really well. But... That does not to say that it wouldn't have been better if he had recorded it in the first place without that noise there. And I think the same thing applies to, for me to uh, master bus processing in general. And I think the other thing is that, for me, it's just impractical. If you're going to be mastering uh, 10 songs, you could, in theory, have one giant mix session where you have each one of those songs laid out, routed to a different stereo bus coming up somewhere so that you could apply separate processing and, and have access to everything. But I, I think that would become really, really unwieldy really quickly. And oh, so then is. you're into the thing of, okay, you, you know, are you flicking <laughs> between songs or, you know, how do you, how do you manage that? And I think I just for me, it's a really satisfying thing to have your 10 songs laid out, separate processes owning each. You can skip instantly from one to another. You can hear how one song moves into the next. You can do the gaps. And then you move on to the track IDs and, you know, all of the other stuff in that one application at that one point. So you sounded like you have experience of attempting to lay out lots of songs <laughs> at the same uh, time. Was that? Yeah. Well, sometimes we'll do a, a full day of recording in a studio and you have kind of the whole band there, at least doing bed tracks and you, to save time, you kind of just do it all in one session. So you've got, you know, however many songs, 12 songs in your project mm -hmm. and it runs fine for a while. And then you start overdubbing a hundred tracks and it gets pretty bogged down, even even in Reaper. So at that point, if you're going to master, either you're going to slap the same setting on every song. Which is not mastering, but that's a whole other right. show, so we'll come back to that. Or you're exporting everything separate, you're bringing all those tracks in and doing it in a separate project. Um, there's pros and cons to doing albums that way. In one way, it saves time. You're not opening up 12 different projects to quickly reference how one sounds versus another one you know, how, how the guitar tones are different between songs, having to mm -hmm. export a mix or to open a project and then open up the other project and, and flip back and forth and decide how, which one sounds better and copy settings. All those things are easier when it's all in one project, but uh, in terms of mastering, it's kind of not a great idea. I think this original question kind of comes from the place of working on a single song at a time. You can treat it as a single, but if you do 12 songs this way and you listen to them all back to back, they're probably not going to balance very well because you've been mixing and mastering as you go over course of six months and they're just not going to balance. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I, I appreciate that that's why lots of people work, you know, I mean, and, and I, I mean, it's interesting though, because I've, I'm now at the stage where I actually politely refuse to master single songs. At the moment, I get quite a lot of emails from people saying, can you master this song for me? And I, I always get back and say, I'm really sorry. Right now, I'm only accepting new clients um, for, for projects of three or more songs. And that's partly just a practicality issue for me. It takes much longer to do the first song in any set of songs because the material is completely fresh to you. You have to, It's like, OK, what does this need to sound like? How am I going to get it there? 
I could take easily an hour to an hour and a half on the first song in an album, but then might work through the other songs quite a lot quicker than that. Yeah. Um, so kind of if you're doing an album in a day, that that works out. But if your day is kind of four or five single songs, um, I, I've just found I was I was having to, I mean, I do, if people really want me to, I do, do still offer to do it, but they usually go, how much? <laughs> um, and don't bother <laughs> doing it in the end. So um what if they sent you a couple really good reference tracks and you're using those as the compilation but only one of them gets the processing? Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I, okay. I'm not saying I can't do it or I won't do it. Uh, it's, it's my preference. Um, yeah. And it's, it's more about just I have so much stuff to do. You know, I'm trying to do the blog. I'm trying to do the podcast. I'm trying to do the plugins. I'm doing the home mastering course and people want me to do mastering work. And it's, it's kind of, you know, I'm lucky that I'm, I don't have to take every single uh, offer that comes my way of doing mastering sure. work. Um, so it's more, it's, it's almost more a practicality issue, but I also think philosophically how you can master a single song. You just make it sound as good as you can to yourself you know, within your own kind of internal frame of reference, you know, if I'm mastering, you know, I, I know what my reference levels are. I know what I think in a great EQ is. I know what sounds great in my room, but I think mastering makes much more sense when you're talking about songs within the context of a collection of songs, be it an EP or an album or a compilation album or, you know, whatever it might be. If you have an artist who's very consistent over time, you can kind of do a single song to fit in with everything else they've ever done. But actually, how many artists, you know, quite often you have different mix engineers working on every project, different mastering engineers working on every project. Um, it, I think that's quite a rare scenario. Um, Definitely. So, yeah, for, for, for me personally, I, and, and as I say, I do have a whole other show planned on the topic of, of how to master an album. And we'll kind of come back to this then. Yeah. So um, One other final other point. One, one more final oh, okay. point. Last week when I was, I was working on like a kind of a, an updated mastering video and I was going through my songs. I do some test mastering. I bypass all my plugins. It sounds exactly the same. All the stuff that I've mixed myself sounds exactly the same after mastering because I already have the specific sound that I want at the end of the mix. So I, I think that one of the problems with mixing and mastering your own stuff is that you're not really making it better through mastering. You don't have that perspective uh, or the mindset to do it right. You agree with that? Up to a point. I mean, having just mastered some of my own stuff just recently um, in the project that I'm working on, um, I'm doing it a song at a time, um, but I did three songs and then, so I mastered those as a group and now I'm mastering each new song that i've mixed to go in, to fit in with the others mm -hmm. um it's it's kind of pleasing how little work i have to do at the mastering stage in terms of the overall sound it's slightly worrying for the exactly the reason you say which is that if there's a problem in my mix i could just miss it and that's that's a great argument for having somebody else master your your music which is kind of a slightly different subject but my stuff does end up sounding better after it's mastered because I mean, for example, one of the things is when I mix, I typically have my monitoring level at a much higher level than when I master, um, which means that the mixes are more dynamic than the final masters. And part of that is just because it, it makes my job mixing easier because I don't have to worry about it too much because I know I'm going to be able to, to balance those levels out at the mastering stage. And that's another reason in my mind for doing mastering and mixing separately is that you can just say to yourself, okay, overall the whole mix lacks a bit of low mid. I'm not going to worry about that now. I can deal with the mastering. It just, it clears some more headspace to focus on specific stuff that you can only deal with in mixing, like whether the timing of the kick drum is right, or, you know, whether the, the chorus on the guitar is perfect, that kind of stuff. But I also do a little bit of EQ and to some extent that compensates for the the compression and the limiting and, and how they change your perception of the sound. I mean, the other thing is, I you know, I have really good monitoring. I know exactly what I'm hearing. I have absolute confidence um, that the decisions I make when I master it are going to be good. So again, it's not, I wouldn't recommend to people that they 
master their own stuff necessarily and if they do i certainly think you need to take a good amount of time to kind of refresh your ears so you come to it clean um anybody who's interested in this should go back and listen to i think it's i don't remember which show number it is one of the first few shows we did uh the three m's of mastering because this is number one number one there we go mindset uh is one of the key aspects of mastering so yeah that's that's a great point um i still find i get a benefit out of mastering um if you genuinely don't get any benefit out of mastering, you probably shouldn't bother. <laughs> you presumably lift the level of your stuff up, do you? Or even the levels out? Or is it... Yeah, there, there is that. There's the balancing of different levels across songs. But generally, I apply a little bit of multiband compression. I bypass it and it sounds pretty much exactly the same. Like a placebo amount of difference. Um... <laughs> Just because I, I already use so much compression when I mix. That's one thing. So there's right. there's not going to be any drastic changes. Um, everything is already kind of at the, the as loud as it's going to get. Not peak volume, but kind of the loudness overall is. Mm-hmm. My stuff, you've, you've heard some of my mixes, and I intend to make stuff quite dense. So... Yeah, I, th- I think if I was going to say anything, you, you've got a little bit of room to, to allow some more space <laughs> into your mix. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, this stuff that I've been mixing recently is kind of acoustic-y, kind of, what is, what is, what's it called? New quirk power folk is supposedly the genre of it. Um, okay. So it's kind of slightly progressive, folky, jazzy, poppy. It's great. Um, really good, catchy tunes. But that means it doesn't suit a really dense mix for the most part. But... So I'm using multiband compression on the whole drum bus, which is something I will come back to for a later question, if we ever stop talking about this one again. <laughs> um, I'm compressing the bass because it's a, it's an acoustic guitar being played as a bass on the low strings, um, so it's very spiky, and it just needed that degree of control to get the kind of solidity you need. I'm compressing the vocals, and other than that, I don't think I'm any, using any compression at all at the mix stage. So the mixes are pretty dynamic and they get quite a lot of processing. But just to kind of revisit something that you mentioned, when I master them, I kind of spend whatever it is, half an hour or an hour mastering the song and I apply multiband compression and limiting and EQ just as we've talked through on all of the episodes. Then when I come to bypass it using perception, so it's level matched or loudness matched, I should say, I agree, I don't hear a huge difference. And, and you could kind of think, well, what was the point of all of that? if when you bypass the processing, you don't hear a huge difference. The answer is that it sounds very much as I intended when I mixed it with like six, eight dBs less dynamic range, which enables me to lift it up into that sweet spot where it translates. I don't think I have that six or eight dB of dynamic range to lose in a lot of my mixes. I have like two or three that I can do with a master limiter and maybe do some clipping if there's really spiky transients. There's a more noticeable change when I do mastering for other mixers. Uh, right. So, okay. And the, the main problem of, of this was that I'm trying to do a tutorial video and I'm, I'm getting it set up and there's a 1% difference after half an hour of mastering. <laughs> so you, you kind of need to show some sort of improvement. And uh, yeah. yeah. So absolutely. anyway, let's, let's, you, you, let's go. Let's get on with it. We'll move on. Okay. Yeah. All right. Ryan asks a question about burning master discs suitable for reproduction. There's a lot of conflicting information out there on this topic. So you use WaveLab. For your I mastering. use WaveLab. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the first thing to say about this is that I don't uh, supply master discs for reproduction at all. Um, never have. All DDP now. It's always all been DDP. Back in the day, it used to be U-Matic uh, tapes, uh, big video cartridges. They would go to the plant. Then we moved to DDP masters, which went onto little like computer data backup tapes, um, exabyte tapes. And these days, I just supply DDP files um, via FTP or Dropbox. That's not to say that you can't and you shouldn't use disks, but there are disadvantages of disks main one is that they get damaged if there's a playable disc people are tempted to take them out and play them um, which can cause problems 
The other thing is you need to be careful about the error rate on the disks. And I suspect this is where all of the conflicting information comes from. One time I did supply disks as masters was back in the day when I did lots of enhanced CDs, which was a CD with um, some CD-ROM data on the end. So you could play the CD in a CD player, then you could put it in a computer and you could play usually a QuickTime video or some kind of multimedia content. Um, no one bothers with that anymore. No one bothers right. with that anymore because it all goes online. Uh, yeah. You were never able to write a DDP file of that because it was what was called a multi-session disk. So you had the first session, which was the audio session, and then you had the CD-ROM session, which was the second session. For those, we did have to supply, therefore, playable disks. Um, and we actually had a dedicated hardware error-checking system. Uh, cost about £10,000. Uh, where you put the disc in and it ran through it. The first one only worked at two times speed. By the time I finished, it was running at eight times speed. That would analyze the errors on the disc. I mean, all CDs have errors in, but the vast majority of them should be correctable errors. The only problem happens if you have an E32 error or an uncorrectable error, in which case, probably for the audio, it's not that big of a deal. The, the player will just interpolate between the two samples that it wasn't able to read. So unless you have a hugely high error rate, you'll still get great sounding music. By any decent plant, a disc like that would be rejected. And that's where the risk comes in, which is, I said, any decent plant. I know of lots of plants that will go ahead and press any disc you give them. Uh, we've had projects replicated where it was supposed to be audio and it was CD-ROM. We've had people press discs that had DDP images on them thinking they were audio. So people put them in the CD player and they get full level white noise played at them. Um, you know, you name it, it's happened, uh, including, you know, horrible, so many E32 errors that you get audio glitching and all the rest of it. So that's, that's the risk with um, playable discs. So for anybody who can use DDP, I'd recommend they do. So WaveLab does DDPs, Studio One, does DDPs. There's a plugin for Pro Tools. Uh, Hoffa, I think, uh, is the company that makes it that will allow you to do DDPs. I think Reaper supports DDPs, although it might be a little bit clunky. Maybe it's very clunky. Since I last asked you, it's okay. it's very clunky. But I use the Hoffa plugin. Okay, there you go. which is H O F A. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, German company. Um, great, great. Probably the best um, DDP program as far as workflow goes it's so fast like cool. two well, minutes I, I, to make yeah because i think it um it kind of it does pretty much like with wave lab everything's built in so you can put the track ids and everything so you you get to the end of working on a project and you go right ddp and it's it's done and i i think that's pretty much what hoffa does right yeah um i i, I export my finished masters from reaper drop the files in do a bit of uh file name cleanup uh, if necessary, and drop in my ISRC, and it's done. Cool. Yeah. In the Home Mastering Masterclass, you showed Sonor Sonoris or something like mm -hmm. that, and yep. some other very expensive programs for making DDPs, and they're just so clunky looking and just <laughs> awful. Uh, the Hofa one, Hoffa, whatever. It's great. You don't have to type in the artist name 12 times for 12 songs. You just type it once, That's press great. the down That's... button, and it fills it in for you. Little things like that. Same in WaveLab. Uh, WaveLab has a nice thing where you can grab the names of the tracks from the audio clips in your timeline. Um, mm -hmm. Little, Yeah, you can copy, you know, like you say, artist name across to all of them. So that's, yeah, but Sonorous works and is very good. Some people use WaveBurner, which used to come with Logic. Uh, I've heard that there are bugs in that to do with the start IDs. So I don't recommend, that's fine for burning playable discs, but I don't recommend it for DDP images. If you're not writing DDP images, then you have to do playable discs. And at this point, my advice kind of runs out because I'm just so out of the loop on that stuff. Uh, there was, when we had the CD checking machine, there was a particular brand of disc, uh, which wasn't like Sony or uh, Maxell or any of the other companies that were doing discs back then, you kind of went straight to the manufacturer. They were called Tayo Yudin discs. Yep, they had universally the lowest error rates. Okay. Um, I saw the quality of those start to decline um, over the years. Um, They've been bought, I think, by JVC since then. Okay. So, um, but blankmedia.ca, I believe, is where I get it. There's probably international versions of that site. Oh, but they have, I think they rank them as 
mastering quality and archival quality and stuff like that. You can get some with gold on the bottom, all that kind of stuff. HHB has some mastering uh, super high quality discs that are like $10 a piece for blanks. And I've heard that those are good as well. I'm sure but, they are, but I mean, we used to pay about uh, a pound a disc for Tayo Yudin discs, uh, yeah. and the quality was excellent. The challenge is knowing whether or not they're any good. And I kind of feel like in this day and age, use DDP images. They have better error correction than a playable disc. They're almost impossible to damage. They will either include or you can send with them a thing called an MD5 checksum file, which is basically a kind of... Uh, that's a unique number generated from the image that can be regenerated at the other end of whatever way you transfer it so that somebody can verify that the images come through without being damaged. Um, yeah. It's quicker, you know, you can upload it directly to your client so you don't have to post things. Um, I even have a, a free player that I've licensed from Sonorous, actually, that I can distribute to all my clients so that they can open the DDP image, they can check all the metadata, the ISRCs, the titles, the, all that kind of stuff. They can burn playable discs. They can export the songs as WAVs or MP3s. I mean, it just, for me, you know, you could go that route, but it's just kind of a world of pain to supply masters on playable discs these days. However, I think CD Baby still request playable discs, or maybe they will work from DDPs, but they do something crazy like well, I know at one point somebody was taking a DDP image, burning a playable disc from the DDP image, and then using that as the master, because effectively they were, you know, they're using replication rather than duplication. I should quickly say what the difference is between those. Duplication is putting a, a CD into a tower and burning a ton of copies on recordable discs, whereas replication or manufacturing is where you actually, there's a laser beam recorder, you create uh, stampers, you have kind of, and, and you literally press the CDs like vinyl used to be pressed. Um, they get coated in aluminium, all that stuff. So kind of proper, if you like, CDs. In that case, any company that's using that system can almost certainly use a DDP image. They'll be able to use a playable disc as well, but they'll probably use a DDP, and that's what I would recommend. But I don't know how many of the duplication uh, hardware systems out there will allow you to use a DDP image. And the risk from that is if somebody else creates a playable disc from your DDP image, if anything went wrong in, as part of that process, if there was a very high error rate on the copy they burnt, that could then cause a problem. I mean, at the end of the day, if you listen to your discs when they come back from being manufactured and they sound good, none of this really matters. You know, you can have a really high error rate on a disc and providing the audio comes off it clean, it's not an issue. Um... But if you're asking the question about how to do this properly, then the best possible answer is use something like Tayo Yudin. I use verbatim discs for, um, for Blu-ray test copies and, uh, and stuff. They've been very good. I think they're, they're a reasonable brand. If you're supplying it as a master, you also need to be reading the error rate somehow and checking that there are no uncorrectable errors on there. And yeah, like I say, at that point, I kind of lose the will to live. Yeah. And send multiple discs so that one is for listening to and one is for the duplication. Absolutely. Things like that. The other issue that I remember from my days of supplying discs that people would get very hot under the collar about was burn speeds. You know, should you burn at the, should you burn at 2x? Should you burn at real time? Should you burn at the speed recommended for the media that you're using? The only answer for that is to test. You know, whatever, because every CD, this is the, this is where it gets to be a nightmare is because the manufacturers keep changing the, the way they make the discs. So they will change the die layer in the recordable discs. So even though a brand might have played nicely with your burner in past, doesn't mean it will do in future as well. And they can change it out without you knowing, without you having, because different drives would play nicely or not with different brands of discs. I mean, it is a nightmare when I think about it. <laughs> um, but um, so this yeah, is the, as the only bad way. as the dither episode now. It is almost as bad as the dither episode, isn't it? And I know we lost a few people on that one. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the next question. Uh, short answer, don't use recordable discs. Don't use playable discs. Use DDP images. Question comes from Roger. When I record drums, I want them to be loud. I'm experimenting with drum and bass. But they tend to have loud spikes causing my limiter to kick in. If I turn them down so that I can bring the general level up for the other instruments, they lose their impact. Do I go for heavy limiting and risk distortion, or am I missing a trick? 
This is a good use for clipping, I believe. And distortion on drum and bass is desirable, usually. Yeah, I have... The, the, this is another question that could run and run. Um, I mean, one thing to say is it, it depends what kind of sound you're going for in drum and bass, because if, you, if you're using as your reference tracks, say, something like uh, Skrillex, um, or pretty much any of the big names in the genre, chances are they are super squashed, super, quotes, loud, really low peak to loudness ratio. Um, as well, they're usually layers, layers and layers of sounds for every hit. There's all kinds of tricks that go into the production of it. You know, I mean, I've said this before, I've, I've heard that Skrillex uh, doesn't even use sidechain compression on the kick and the bass line. He actually ducks the bass by hand every time the kick hits. I don't know whether that's true, but that is the kind of obsessive level that some people will go to when they're crafting this kind of music. So, so we'll kind of ignore the issue of whether or not it's a good idea to go that loud. I mean, one thing in the question that slightly concerns me, which is that he says, if I turn the drums down so that I can bring the general level up for the other instruments, they lose their impact. I don't quite understand why that works. I mean, I would say just turn the whole mix down and then crank the monitoring level up, like I was just saying about the way that I mix, so that you hear it loud. And then when you come to the mastering stage, worry about the overall level. You're going to have to control the dynamics to a large extent within the mix in order, you, you know, you can't go too far at the mastering stage. Um, but I don't see why giving yourself more headroom, effectively more peak headroom, is going to affect the impact of the instruments. Unless, like you say, actually the added distortion from heavy limiting kind of feels like it's giving them more aggression or more impact, which is a possibility. I mean, the final bit of this question is, do I go for heavy limiting and risk distortion or am I missing a trick? And I think you might be missing a trick, which is, remember that I said when I'm mixing, I'm using a multiband compressor on the drums. For me, the key to, in general, to getting high levels um, in mastering or, e or in mixing as well is to not try and let a limiter do all of the work. I recommend, particularly with drums, you want to have compression in there with longer attack times so the, the transients, the spiky bits get through and then the compressor controls the body of the sound more, the, the kind of the more sustained part of the sound. Then you can put a limiter on after that and because it's only the really spiky stuff that's got through, the limiter can handle that stuff really cleanly. You can get a higher level without that distortion. If you just put uh, uncompressed drums straight into a limiter, you're going to need 6, 7, 8 dBs of gain reduction and if that limiter is biting into the the tone of the drum you know the ring of a snare drum or the thud in a kick drum or whatever or, the, or of a tom or whatever it might be chances are that's going to sound distorted and nasty if you've controlled those parts of the sound using you know it doesn't have to have to be really aggressive but just some some gentle compression before you hit the limiter then the limiter doesn't have to bite into the the body of the sound it can just deal with the transients and it'll be able to you, you can push it harder without getting the distortion so that's kind of my general answer to that question then you come into like you say the whole you know doing a parallel version which is heavily distorted and blend a little bit of that in or using a clipper i mean for me when i, I usually reach for not for hard digital clipping but for soft clipping if i'm finding that Actually, the sound is loud enough, but it sounds too clean. So if I want something to sound more aggressive, um, that's the kind of time that I might try using clipping instead of pure limiting, yeah. having done some compression already. I think you do need both. If I was to do drum and bass, I would probably have a separate bus for kick and snare, apart from the rest of the drums, because there's usually say there's four different kick drums that going through the same bus, they'll get some compression, some limiting. There's probably a clipper in there as well. You can use heavy compression sometimes to get a certain tone, but then you need the clipper to get rid of that sharp attack. Or really it's just bringing it down to the same level. And then, then you've got your really big, heavy, hard hitting uh, kick and snare. It's, it's something that's kind of hard to explain. You're going to have to show it. Sounds like you should do a, a tutorial in EDM production. Um, I mean, I agree. The thing is, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a question of how deep do you go with this? Because I do think 
if you're going for that extreme loudness that is common in the EDM genre, then you can't wait till the mastering stage to achieve that. You, it needs to be a goal f from the point of the, the, the tones, the sounds that you choose, the way that they're arranged, the way that the production works, then the way that it's mixed, and then the way that it's mastered. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think clipping for me adds some kind of nice, fairly subtle distortion, which is why it gives that more aggressive sound. And it also, obviously, there's no gain reduction as such. It's not like a, a clipper doesn't have an attack and release time in the way that a compressor or a limiter does. So you won't ever hear the sound being pulled back. It basically just kind of slams up and the peak level gets controlled. The final thing that I want to say, though, is that I would encourage people who are doing EDM to experiment with more dynamics. There's a, a blog post on my website that uh, we could put the link to about this topic because, you know, I mean, if so Skrillex might have a PSR, peak to short term loudness ratio of, say, 4 dBs. So 4 dBs difference between the loudness and the peak could be quite normal. Whereas I advocate not going below eight. Now that's 4 dBs difference, but in a world where loudness matching, you know, loudness management normalization is being used on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, Tidal, everywhere, that song is going to sound just the same level as the one that was more crushed, and it's going to hit harder because it's got more room to move. And if you're if you can restrict yourself to say, okay, I'm going to allow myself at least 8 dBs difference between the loudness and the peak, the requirement to use all of these techniques reduces. You know, you suddenly, I think the thing that I find frustrating about EDM as a genre is I see so much time and talent spent on simply making stuff stupidly loud when they could forget about all that stuff, back off the levels a bit, it would still sound fantastic. I mean, the blog post I'm talking about, we'll put it in the show notes, has a ton of classic EDM tunes that sound amazing and have more dynamics. It's going to sound better going forward into the future. Uh, it's just going to work. Um, and yes, even in clubs. But that's probably, uh, uh, well, we kind of uh, covered that in an earlier episode with Steve as well. So unless there's anything else you want to add, John, let's move on to the next one. John asks, I use Isotopes Limiter and have read the technical definition of threshold and margin but still not sure what the difference is. What is the difference between the threshold and margin and why set the margin to minus one dBFS and not the threshold? So margin is the same as ceiling on other limiters. Is that right? I was going to say the problem is that there are so many different names for them and they all work in slightly different ways. So just to use an example, some limiters you pull down the threshold and it automatically boosts the gain. That's the way the Waves L1 works. Um, a lot Others, of the mastering limiters do that. A lot of the mastering limiters do that, but it doesn't have to work that way. Um, you could pull the threshold down and the overall level could stay the same and it would just start controlling the peaks. At that point, you would start to see more daylight on the output of the limiter. Other limiters, well, say for example, isotope, when you pull down the margin, which is like the output ceiling, the maximum level the limiter is going to reach, basically it just turns the output level down. Whereas there are other limiters still, which will say, okay, well, if the if if I've got one dB less headroom on the output, I'm going to have to start limiting sooner. So it's effectively like pulling the threshold down. So I think the one thing you can always rely on is that the threshold is where the limiting starts. So if you have a signal that peaks at minus two dBs and you pull the threshold down to minus one, no limiting will happen. If you pull the threshold down to minus two, no limiting will happen. If you pull it down to minus three, suddenly the threshold is lower than the peak level going in. You're going to start getting some limiting happening. Different limiters may or may not apply auto gain to that. Um, you just need to check the version that you're using and see how it behaves. But that definitely is what threshold is always going to do or should always do on any limiter. In terms of the output ceiling, or what isotope call the margin, there's two ways of doing it. In isotope, when you pull that margin, that output ceiling down, the overall output gain drops. So I always recommend these days a maximum output level from a limiter of minus one dB. And 
that was covered in a previous episode that we can link to in the show notes. You know, that's to prevent intersample clipping. It's to prevent problems when you convert it to MP3. It's because it complies with the R128 standard. Um, that's just a, a golden rule of mine. No more than minus one. On the isotope limiter, because it's turning the gain down, if you do that, your output level will drop by 1 dB. So at that point, you need to pull the threshold down by 1 dB as well if you want to keep the gain constant, at which point the isotope limiter will lift the level up by 1 dB. So you're, you'll, you'll, the loudness going in and out of the limiter will stay the same, but you will start to hear some limiting if the peak goes above minus 1. There are other limiters where you pull the output ceiling or the margin down, and the limiter says, well, okay, if my output ceiling is at minus three, I should start applying limiting as soon as the signal goes above minus three. Effectively, the threshold is auto-linked to the output ceiling. Um, and that's why I say you just you need to know how the limiter that you're using works. That felt really confusing as I explained it. Was that even remotely coherent? I think if you listen to it twice, you will get it. <laughs> if you're thinking about a specific li limiter when you're listening to Ian talk there, it may not be exactly the same as your favorite limiter. Uh, you do need to experiment. I think workflow also comes into it. If you are kind of following the 32-bit floating point um, way of thinking, uh, some of your tracks that you've bumped up on your, um, in your mastering are going to be above 0 dB. Um, and in that case, pulling down the the margin or the ceiling on your limiter is going to start limiting uh, the track. It's not going to go above minus one, even if your threshold is at zero. But if you have more analog levels, so you're coming into the track at minus 18 or minus 12, and then you, you would need to bring your threshold of your limiter down by minus 12 or whatever to get your level up to the point where it needs to start limiting. And that's where that auto gain actually makes a difference. Does that make sense? I think I think that it makes does. sense. Oh, that's that's makes sense to me, yeah. At the start of my mastering, I bump up my levels on the actual items going into the effects chain. I'm using non-analog processing type plugins in mastering. So a good clean EQ, um, multiband compressor, all this these things that aren't analog modeled and they're not adding distortion, they can go above zero dBFS. And the limiter is uh, the final stage and it, I set my ceiling to minus one. Sometimes I don't even adjust the threshold. And it's one of the first things I put on in the, in the master. Yeah, I actually never adjust the threshold. Um, I tell a lie, oh, I, if, I was, if, if I was gonna use ozone, then I would adjust the threshold because I want my level going in and out of the limiter to sound the same. I don't want to hear the level drop as the process is going through the... But so so that's the first thing I do, threshold at minus one, margin at minus one, and then I never touch it. Yeah, I, all my processing is, is lifting the levels going into that. Ozone is supposed to auto-gain, but doesn't quite. Um, it's oh, really? one of the preferences in it. Yeah, it's supposed to auto-gain when you bypass, um, but I've I always adjust it. I think this is the simplest question we've answered so far. You want to move on? <laughs> if that was the simplest, <laughs> we could go. We, we could really... go on and on, but I, I think yeah, there was a whole episode on uh, compression and limiting. In fact, there might have been a whole episode on limiting. Um, I know there is. It's one episode of the most popular two or episodes. Three. Yeah, so episode head back into the archive and listen to that if you want more on this topic. Um, and if you want to know exactly how I do it, then you should take the Home Mastering Masterclass, and I'll show you. Yeah. Next question. Next question comes from Pat. How do you deal with disagreeable clients? In other words, they expect additional work or changes after you consider yourself done. I think we can answer this one fairly quickly. The basic answer is I'm really clear with people before I even start the job. So um, one of the things is I just ask for payment upfront. Um, some people might not feel comfortable about that. You might want to go 50% upfront, but um, I would recommend payment in advance. Um, it gets rid of a lot of time wasters and it you have the money, so there's no quibbling. I mean, obviously, if somebody's not satisfied for some reason, I would absolutely give them their money back. I'm not going to quibble about, it's not like I'm holding people to ransom. Um, that's just the way that I like to work. Another thing is that I charge a lot of money. 
Um, at least in my opinion, it's a lot of money. It's not as much as some of the, the biggest names in the industry out there, but it's it's enough to make lots of people's eyes water. Um, that means that I have a lot of scope. You know, if I get a job that's really easy to master, then looking at it on the basis of a an hourly rate, I've made really good money. But that means that I then have time sometimes for projects that are more tricky to spend more time without kind of feeling unhappy about it. I can, you know, I can be gracious about giving people a great service because I know that there's, I'm getting enough money coming in that it's going to be worth my while. Having said all of that, the other thing is um, that I tend to, I mean, I think there's a general industry standard of two sets of alterations is fine. And I actually kind of go one stage beyond that in the sense that I explain to people that, you know, if they want small changes, um, this song's a little bit too loud. This one maybe has a bit too much bass. This, you know, that gap needs to be longer. Um, can you sort the fade out on this? Um, oh, I want to give you an alternative mix where I've dropped the vocals by a dB. Those kind of quick and easy changes I would always do for free, no quibble. You know, they're 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 quick and easy, and I, I'm charging enough that I'm happy to do those things. If they uh, want to supply a completely new song or a totally new mix, that means I have to start from scratch with the mastering. Again, I'd always try and accommodate that um, because, you know, my goal is to for my customers to be delighted with the service that I offer. So the last thing I want is to get into any kind of argument with them about the rights and wrongs of what they're asking for. But, you know, if somebody wants two or three songs with fairly extensive changes, what I will usually do is do at least some of it and then say, you know, I'm happy to do all that as part of our original price, but if you need any more, I, I'm afraid I will have to start charging. That kind of covers it, except that the other thing is if somebody really takes the mickey, I fire them. You know, um, I have kind of have a, it's like a a one strike and you're out rule. If if somebody really upsets me in whatever way as part of the process, wasting my time or, I don't know, kind of moving the goalposts and then giving me grief over it when I point out politely that actually they just moved the goalpost, that kind of stuff. You know, I, I stay polite and helpful till the project's done and then I won't do any work for them in future. Yeah, that's me. How about you? I'm pretty much the same except for making a lot of money. <laughs> that's where we differ. So you just need to change that and job done. That could be a whole other topic, but I would say don't be afraid to charge a decent amount of money. You know, it doesn't... It, and it doesn't have to be a lot in comparison to anybody else or... It, you have to charge enough money that you're happy to do the work that people are asking you to do for that money. Otherwise, as far as I'm concerned, it's a road to ruin, you know, because you just if you train yourself to give outstanding results for people who don't pay you enough money, you're just getting really good at doing great work for not enough money. If you put your prices up to the point where you feel happy and maybe you lose a few clients initially, you know, OK, you might get a few less clients in, but the ones that you get are going to be paying you more. And I definitely think there's a there's the kind of factor of people who pay more money actually almost are more respectful of what they're paying for. You know, I mean, the, the extreme example of that is people tend to have very little respect for stuff that they get for free. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with all of this. And I do like my my rate right now. One of the things we differ on a little bit for uh, workflow and something that's come up in the podcast a couple times is... Um, with revisions or asking the asking for updated mixes, uh, you tend to do whatever you can with what you have. And I tend to, um, the number one thing is, can you put a de-esser on this? Um, nine times out of 10 now, I'm, I'm asking for a couple updated mixes with a de-esser on the vocal and on the reverb return. That's something I can't fix in mastering. So I tend to ask for that first. That is not something that I charge extra for. Um, I don't mind getting a couple different revisions. I think in mastering, it's never gone, gotten to the point where it's become a problem. I've always had very agreeable clients that have a few requests for changes, uh, very few requests for changes, no matter what I've charged for the mastering. So I, I guess I've been lucky. Yeah, I think maybe I've been lucky as well, because I, I can't really think of any kind of real horror stories on this topic. I think it's much more common to have problems in, in recording and mixing where it's much more open-ended. You know, the, one of the nice things about mastering in terms of doing it for clients is it's a fairly well-defined uh, role 
you know, set of tasks that you have to achieve. And when you've got it right, you've got it right. Um, and I agree. I mean, yeah, if, if it's an alteration that I request, I would never ask anybody to pay for, for that, you know, because that's, it's me causing the problem. I've seen people talk about uh, their mastering experiences, working with other people and, and getting stuff that doesn't sound right. I, I've had some stuff that I've mixed that, um, that I didn't get input on the mastering for before it was released. And I was very disappointed with how they turned out. Um, but in general, if you're paying for it, you should have it exactly how you like. And it should be a collaboration with the mastering engineer, not um, you get what you get. Yeah, and I, maybe that maybe I should kind of soft pedal slightly on what I was... I mean, the question was about problem clients. Yes. Um, that's not to say that I think that anybody who asks for a revision or an alteration is a problem client. You know, no, definitely um, not. It's that's what like, they're because I, I can do. I mean, for. right? The, exactly, the, and that's what they're paying this the money for. I mean, and I when we once so one thing I do is I will always always try to do one song for. Let's say somebody books me to do an album, I will do one song and send it off to them get feedback and get into a dialogue about that till we're both happy with the sound of that song and then proceed on to the rest of the album. That's another damage limitation uh, technique in the sense that if the client is really not going to be happy with what I'm doing, which thankfully hardly ever happens, but every every now and again you get somebody who's just on a completely different wavelength, you find that out early on. And at that point I can say, it's fine, you know, I think you need to find somebody else who has the same goals as you do for this song and i haven't then put all of that time and effort into an album we don't have to haggle about any money it's you know i mean okay so it was one song but that's not the end of the world um but yeah if you know if somebody generally says oh the whole thing sounds a little bit bright or a little bit dull or whatever or this that song you know i'm happy to make those changes because like i say i've charged money that i'm happy with that's come i'm comfortable with and because I want them, you know, I want them to be delighted. I want them to go out and tell everybody what a great guy I am and what a great job I did. And I want to be proud of the result. And I would find it very hard to be proud of an album where I knew the client. You know, I would never want a client to go away unhappy. Um, you know, sometimes clients are kind of, through the mastering process, become aware of the limitations of what they've done. So it's not like they're necessarily going to be absolutely over the moon. Um, but you at least want them to say, yes, that's the best that it could be. And you helped us get it there. That's that's the goal. So. And I think if you if you can achieve that, then you are not going to have too many problem clients. That's no. that's been my experience. I think. Yeah. Um, really, refusing a mix that is just not up to par is really the only problem that I've run into. Right. If the mix is just not ready for mastering, refuse it. Give some suggestions on what they should change. Yeah, or, or politely suggest. Yeah, exactly. I try and give kind of positive feedback on the stuff that I do like and, and you know, kind of suggestions of how maybe it could be even better. And every so often I have to refuse something and that almost always upsets somebody, but I only do it if I genuinely, you know, at that point I'm like thinking you shouldn't be paying me to work on this because it's nothing that I can do will get it where you want it to go without you going back and doing more work somewhere else. You know, mm -hmm. singer is completely out of tune or the playing is really bad or, you know, just the, the com recording completely sucks, uh, you know, and, th and that, I mean, okay, I'm going to upset it, somebody, and I'm not going to have them as my client, but that's the right thing to do um, because I wouldn't feel comfortable taking their money even if they begged me. Um, so managing expectations is important. Exactly. It's, it's the whole under promise over deliver scenario. You know, that's, that's the way to go. Unless your masters are drastically different from their mixes. I, I don't see any real problems happening. No, I mean, that's another thing about, I mean, in general, the mastering, you know, lots of people will say that, you know, the the, the cardinal rule in mastering is do no harm. You know, mm -hmm. whatever you do, don't make it sound worse. Um, I could go off on a tangent about the loudness wars and how actually lots of people are doing that, but I'll avoid <laughs> the temptation. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, that for me is the goal. When I get to the point where I enable perception and do my loudness matched comparison before and after, um, if if my version doesn't sound better than the bypassed version, it's back to the drawing board. You know, it's well, why not? What did I what did I do? What did I miss? Where did it go wrong? So, and you know, thankfully, most almost all the time, my clients agree with my opinion of what sounds better. <laughs> yeah. Um, which which is what it's all about. That's that's what you're going for. Um, 
That's why you choose a particular person to master your music. Exactly. And I think that's another point is, you know, communication is key. Having, you know, it amazes me how many people will send their stuff off to either an online mastering place where they don't get to talk to the engineer or an automated mastering service and then they're disappointed with the results that come back and it you can just avoid all that stuff by you know firing off an email and saying oh here's the thing i'd like it to sound like this what do you think and you know for me if there's an engineer who's too busy or um whatever to to kind of enter into that conversation that's not somebody that i want to work with so much of it is about you know what are your goals you know for, for this um and there's so many conversations to be had in that in terms of the overall sound and the, all the rest of it. So, yeah, by having all of those conversations early on, you can avoid the risk that anybody is going to be disappointed. And I, I try to avoid any um, ideas that the client is the problem because um, you see that a lot, I think, with um, this industry. I agree. I'm not going to say I've never had that thought <laughs> because there are times when you know the client is the problem but uh to go into it with that mindset with the kind of the expectation you're just setting yourself up to fail with, with that you know it's uh you know the the client is the client the client is that this is their music uh you know it's we've got to look at it see what's good about it and make it better as much as we possibly can and um, you know, they're not always right, but they're always the ones who care most, you know, um, they're the one who, ones who poured weeks, months, years of their blood, sweat and tears into, into this project. Um, and we have to be respectful of that. And that seems like a pretty good place to, to come to a, a stop on this particular episode. I think there's some great questions in there. Um, we spent plenty of time answering them. I hope people got enough uh, detail out of those answers. I hope people enjoyed the idea of a question and answer episode. Let us know if you like it, then we will do some more in future. Thank you, John, for reading the questions and coming up with useful comments and feedback on the stuff that I was throwing out there. You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad I was useful this time. <laughs> <laughs> You're useful every time. So, John, I know that your audience are interested in the topic of mastering as well as Reaper. And I think I'm right in saying that you've got some uh, some videos and some blog posts planned on that topic. Is that right? Yeah, I have some new stuff coming up. Uh, it'll be up in the next week. I also have a, quite a few other posts on mastering. Um, I have an older video on how I set up to do an album master. I have a video on how I use the Halfa DDP maker, um, one on how to use Reaper to quickly update your masters when you get new mixed revisions. A really cool workflow tip there. I've got a video that's fairly recent on using clippers in mastering, and I compare three different ones. Of course, not just mastering stuff on the website. Lots of Reaper-related stuff or general music production workflow kind of things. Yeah, fantastic. So we'll stick some links to those in the show notes. Um, if you're not listening to this show immediately do come out then the, the new videos that john is talking about will probably be live already um so please do head over and check that stuff out at reaperblog.net uh john is going to be editing and mixing this episode as always good luck with that john the music was by kaylee law my name is ian shepherd thanks for listening <laughs>